0: Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 22 of The Essential X-Lapsed, where uh, I'm getting this recording in very, very early in the day here because, uh, well, I have a dentist appointment in just a little while, and it's uh, pretty extensive stuff here, so I'm not sure I'll be able to talk a little bit later on today, so we got to get this in right now. Uh, we are taking a look at part two of three of the Sentinel Saga here in X-Men number 15, December 1965 cover date Stories called Prisoners of the Mysterious Master Mold Written and edited by Stan Lee With layouts by Jack Kirby Pencils, Warner Roth as J. Gavin Inks, Dick Ayres Letters, Artie Simic Colors, well, in my notes here I say I'll try to think up something funny to say And as usual, I did not um, Cover price, 12 cents And let's hop on in Now we pick up Sorta kinda where we left off last issue, it's honestly a little bit jarring Um, I almost assumed in looking at this first page that it was one of them, uh, like Silver Age spoilery splashes That reveals a big event from later in the issue But it's not Now, if you remember how last time the X-Men arrived at that field of crabgrass And then from it, rose a heavily armed fortress Well, yeah, we're still there Only, the Fortress gimmick is pulling like a fake-ass Krakoa and attacking our heroes? Sorta? I guess what I'm trying to say is that they're all knocked off their feet here by the undulating Earth beneath them. Now, even Professor X falls out of his wheelchair and is, uh, he nearly falls into a newly opened chasm. Now, Warren swoops over to save him, despite the fact that Xavier tells him that he's more than capable of saving himself. I mean, just take the act of kindness, Chuck uh, Who are you trying to impress, right? Jean's not into you, you don't have to worry And I mean, if she were, it would be a felony anyway, so be thankful So we get a couple of pages, or actually several pages, of the X-Men fighting a hill And it's just as stupid as it sounds Finally, they arrive back at the overlook where they started And the underground fortress continues to rise and blasts lasers in every which direction Now, Xavier refers to these blasters as nature activator rays, which, okay. He also reminds the kids that they're here to figure out what a master mold is. Angel wonders how they'll ever get past the nature rays, and Xavier ignores the question and asks one of his own. He asks, why in the world did that one sentinel back at the TV studio shut down? He deduces that they must have a weak spot, and it's going to be up to him to find and exploit it. Now, while Xavier thoughtfully strokes his own chin, Iceman is off to the side crafting, like, this weird sled. It kind of looks like an oversized ashtray, with a pair of lumps sticking out that he and Hank will hold onto. Now, Cyclops will provide the motive power for this oversized ashtray by blasting it with his optic beams. So, we get another few panels of Sykes' visor slowly opening before he blasts the bejesus out of the sled, which sends it way over toward the fort. It's like skipping a stone here. Now, Xavier, he then has Warren fly after them, which kind of begs the question as to why we needed the sled gimmick in the first place. (laughs) I mean, if Warren could go over there just as easily, he could probably just carry a guy or two over there, too. Anyway, Bobby and Hank lose control of the ice disc and are then grabbed by a pair of tentacles and yanked into the fortress. Warren goes to follow them, but Hank tells him not to because he's got to get back and wrangle the others. Now, just as Hank says this, a burst of flame nearly singes Angel's wings. Inside, Beast and Kid Cool are deposited into a class box, and then gassed until they pass out. We head back over to Trask, who is still attempting to appeal to his robotic charges. You see, the Sentinels, they're planning to defeat all humans who dare defy them. I'm not sure what their overarching goal is here. Uh, I suppose we might assume world domination, which, if we take this through the prism of the post hoxpox era, uh, maybe that's step one in the, uh, the way we're getting to post-humanity. I don't know. Now, Trask pleads with them to reconsider, claiming that these bots can't take over the other bots that he created. Now, one of the Sentinels, maybe number 11, tells him that they're far more than meets the eye, and then tells him that he ought to know all about that since he created them. And it's worth noting here, the Sentinels, they're all, like, identified by number or letter. They have them on their their bellies. Trask mentions that all he did was create the Master Mold, and it's the Master Mold who created the Sentinels. So, I guess this is his way of saying he hasn't the foggiest idea what the Sentinels are actually capable of. He reminds them that their only duty, as far as he knew, was to guard the human race from mutants. The Sentinel responds that the only way they can truly guard the human race is to take over it. Uh, Trask goes red in the face, likely a coloring error, and is dragged away to the Master Mold while he considers the massive boner he pulled in unleashing the Sentinels in the first place. Now it's here that we see the Master Mold that we all know and tolerate. You know, the giant Sentinel with the weird helmet sitting in a chair, you know? It's worth noting, uh, the Master Mold looks kind of like a Mega or Mego action figure. Like, he looks like he's wearing actual cloth He's a very soft-looking robo-fella Master Mold then instructs Bolivar Trask that uh, he's going to be creating new Sentinels And, I mean, like, just a page ago, didn't we find out that Trask only created the Master Mold And then the Master Mold created the Sentinels? I don't know Whatever the case, Trask refuses He will not enslave the human race, he would rather die well, that makes no difference to Sentinel number 11. He doesn't have much of a problem killing Trask, if that's what uh, needs to happen. Master Mold reminds Trask that he has enough power to destroy half the nation right this very second, should he decide to. MM tells Trask that if he refuses to help, well, that's exactly what he's gonna do. And all that blood will be on Trask's hands. And Trask is all, you wouldn't. And Master Mold like, is like, we're robots, what do we care? Trask tells the Mold that the X-Men will find a way to destroy the Sentinels. So, uh, boy, the worm has certainly turned here, hasn't it? Master Mold tells Trask that the X-Men ain't nothing. As a matter of fact, he's got two of them already in captivity. Now, speaking of the X-Men, let's head back outside and check in. Angel reports that Hank and Bobby done got snatched. To which Cyclops replies basic with, Yeah, tell us something we don't know. Xavier then touches his temples to try and figure out a way past the fortress defenses And now here is where things get wonky-er Xavier says that if he could manage to blank out the minds of the sentinels You know, the the robots um, Then he could probably nullify the laser barrage And yes, even Chuck realizes that the sentinels don't have brains But suggests that he could still strike at them with mental energies in order to shut them down Eh? Okay. So, uh, that's exactly what he does. Bada-bing, bada-boom, the sentinel sentries all collapse to the ground inside the fortress. And these sentinels, they're lettered, by the way, they're not numbered. We see A, B, L, and T here. Elsewhere in the fortress, sentinels 1, 2, 3, 4, and 6 carry the beast toward the Master Malt's room, where he will be eventually laid out on a table. Now, the gimmick here is they're going to place him under a psychoprobe, which will reveal all the beast's innermost secrets. It's a kind of array of truth serum, I guess. That's probably what we can consider it as the, uh, the quick and easy. Now, I thought the Master Mold wanted all the deets on taking out humans now. So why is he still worried about the mutants? I mean, aren't the Sentinels already programmed to take out mutants? Oh, well, we were promised on the cover of this issue that we would get the origin of the Beast, and I guess this is as good a way as any to facilitate that story being told. So, the psychoprobe is flipped on, and all Hank starts yapping. Now, he doesn't refer to himself as Hank McCoy, by the way. He only calls himself the Beast, so that's convenient. He is, of course, one of the X-Men, and their sworn duty is to protect mankind from evil mutants and all other dangers. Now, upon hearing this, Trask truly realizes how badly he goofed up, because he never thought for a single moment that any mutants could be good guys. Which, I mean, haven't they been on the cover, like, the front page of every single non-Daily Bugle newspaper for being heroes for, like, over a year at this point? Oh well, um, back outside. The remaining X-Men take the opportunity to enter the no-longer-lasery fortress. Cyclops blasts one of the inactive lasers anyway. Thankfully, we don't get three panels of him raising his ruby visor to do so. Once inside, they come across Sentinels A, B, and C, the three gunnery bots that Xavier took out with his mental hoodoo, and they're just laying there, like leaned up against a wall. But then, they're approached by another active Sentinel. Now, this one doesn't appear to be all that dangerous as of yet. The bot informs the X-Men that it wasn't programmed to expect more visitors, and offers to escort them to their section leader, which (laughs) is pretty convenient. And so they follow. Now Warren suggests that they just take the sentinel out from behind. Scott wisely decides against that, citing that the one that they want is the leader, and if they just follow, they'll eventually find him. Now Professor X psychically gives Scott the opposite of a demerit for his good decision. Back to the Babylon barefoot blue-suited beast, he tells the tale of his youth, about how he was bullied for being different. Being different for his anthropoid physique, which... Warner Ruth really doesn't do a great job getting across to us in the art. Uh, Kid Hank just looks like a kid. Like a normal kid. His feet and his hands don't look abnormally large or anything. He's not hunched over. So I guess we'll just take Stan's narration for it. So we've got a bully here vowing to paste Hank one, to which Hank starts bouncing around like an international jumping bean, right into the path of an oncoming car, which Hank also backflips over with ease. Back in the present, Hank states that the hatred he faced had turned into, you guessed it, fear See, people were scared of him, which made him lonelier than ever We'll put a a pin in his story for a moment Because elsewhere, the X-Men are continuing their tour of the facilities Where they come across Bobby in a Box Now, it's at this point they decide to break away from their tour guide and attempt to free their pal Now, the Sentinel, as you might imagine, is not keen on this And so it's time to fight and the fight goes on for two entire panels uh, Jean TK lifts the sentinel and then drops it on its face While she does this, Cyclops frees Iceman Which triggers the clanging of an alarm to begin sounding The entire fortress is on high alert Except for, you know, the master mold room. Now they do hear the alarm, yes Old MM just isn't all that interested in checking it out Because, I mean, what could it possibly be? And so, let's get back into Hank's origin. Now, he was at the top of his class in everything. He was a top scholar, he was the best athlete. Nobody realized he was different until this one time he decided to celebrate in the end zone after scoring a championship-winning touchdown. He removed his shoes, which surely excited all the beatniks in the crowd, then proceeded to hang from the goalposts by his tootsies, which, I mean, that doesn't sound like a good idea or even something one would naturally do. Anyway, the news of these antics make it to the front page of the alumni newspaper, which, for some reason, Professor X had a subscription to. Well, we, we know he's got certain proclivities, right? So Xavier, he reads up on this beast football player and his antics and decides to pay the McCoys a visit. Now, during a shared meal, Charles tells the McCoys about his school and how he would like to train Hank to use his powers for good. Now Ma and Pa McCoy, they're very proud of their boy And uh, they don't like it when people call him a freak And so they agree to send him off with this creepy bald man With a subscription to the high school newspaper who they just met Back to the present Xavier is scanning Hank's mind as he blabs about his origin Knowing that it'll soon come out that Charles Xavier is his mentor And the leader of the X-Men he decides he's got to put a stop to this. Now, it's kind of funny how he didn't care about the beast's mind getting invaded. (laughs) It's just that when his name is about to come up that he intervenes. And so, Xavier pulls the astral projection gimmick and heads inside to shut down Hank's mind. And he does. He plunges Henry McCoy into a coma that he's never woken up from since. Then two panels later, Sage comes in and breaks his neck. Oh, okay, okay, maybe not, maybe not. Anyway, whatever he did, this clammed beast up good. And so the Master Mold wonders exactly what in the hell's going on. You know, he stopped talking. Now Trask frantically jiggles the Psycho Beam, claiming that it should be working. Everything looks to be a go. And it's here where Xavier decides to attempt to strike out the Master Mold itself. This does not work out all that well. MM responds to the attempted mental whatever-the-hell with a barrage of microelectric blasts. Which actually managed to harm the astral-projected professor mm, Easy for me to say, that, that actually took like eight takes uh, Now, Xavier crawls out of there to, in attempt to rejoin his physical body before it's too late Because if he doesn't get back there, he's just going to be a husk Let's get back to the X-Men They're located by a searching squad of sentinels And so, Bobby erects a great big ice wall to try to hold them off And you may be asking yourself at this point, uh, will the ice barrier finally work this time? And I would respond to that question with, what do you think? Of course not, don't be ridiculous. Now the Sentinels are able to burst through the ice wall here. Uh, The X-Men do manage to fall one of the big bots, but are then smacked with a heavy gravity ray which floors the lot of them. We wrap up with the Master Mold commanding Trask to create an army of Sentinels numbering in the thousands. He's dragged away to his lab, all the while lamenting all the bad decisions he's made of late. And that is where we leave it. Next episode, we will get the senses-shattering conclusion of the Sentinel Saga. Now let's hop into the letters page here. We're going to start with James in Missouri, and he gives us a review in six words. They are simply the greatest comics. See, he loved the X-Men's clash with the juggernaut and he's willing to get down on his knees to beg Stan to bring Magneto back. Here, Stan mentions how fickle the fans be, because when Magneto was around, everyone wanted him gone. And now that he's gone, everyone wants him back. I mean, that's just comic fans for you, isn't it. Next up, Perry in Iowa. He shares how he tried to make an alphabet of comic book villains, and since Quicksilver joined the Avengers, he lost his Q entry. Now, he offers up a no prize of his own if a fellow fan can come up with a Q villain. I don't think that's how it works there, Perry I think only Stan can hand those out uh, They're safely under lock and key somewhere I don't know how how you can hand out your own He, um Well, he shares His uh, his alphabet of comic villains uh, Anybody want to hear it? No? No? Well, uh, I mean, he, he went to such trouble And I went to such trouble in transcribing it So, uh, let, let's let's do it Let's do it A is for Atuma B is for Beetle C is for Commissar D is for Destroyer, E is for Enchantress, F is for Fox, G is for Green Goblin, H is for Hymir, I is for Immortus, J is for Juggernaut, K is for Kergo, L is for Lucifer, M is for Magneto, N is for Nedra, or Nidra, I don't know who that is, O is for Owl, P is for Porcupine, Q, ah, we don't have a Q, R is for Radioactive Man, S is for Swordsman, T is for Trago, U is for Eunice V is for Vulture W is for Wonder Man X is for Xanadu Y is for Yag And Z is for Zarko Now Stan tells Perry that he checked with Hawkeye And uh, they're in agreement that uh, If it makes him happy He can keep Quicksilver in the Q position for now Which almost sounds perverted Anyway Next up, Ken in New York He loves the Blob So I, I guess he's the one um, Now he'd like to see the Blob fight the Avengers in the Fantastic Four he would also like Kazar to come back He also loved The Stranger, what? And he wants more Juggernaut So I feel like this might be another Marvel AI letter This just seems a little too strange here Now Stan reveals that Kazar is coming back next month In an offbeat guest appearance, just not in the pages of X-Men But Stan forgets which book it'll be Now a quick check of the Marvel Wiki reveals that Kazar will appear In next month's Daredevil number 12 so if anyone's doing a, an essential K's laps or Kaz lapsed uh, program, uh, that's the next book you got to cover in the uh, rotation. Next up, Alvin in Pennsylvania. He loved the Juggernaut two-parter, and he attempts to no-prize how Cyclops' visor works. And it's uh, pretty insane. He suggests that when Scott, quote, pushes his eyebrows down in a maddened position, unquote, that they press down on a flap that opens a visor. Now, he thinks that they should change the name of the letters page from Let's Visit the X-Men to Mutants Mailbag or X-Men Extras. Now, uh, Stan, he gives Alvin some props on his theory of how Cyclops opens his visor, but asks what happens if Psyche accidentally squints. So I think uh, that's a uh, polite declining of handing you a no prize, because, I, I mean, I, I that's a bad theory. <laughs> it just isn't a good theory here. As for changing the name of the letters page Stan doesn't address it here But um Yeah, Let's Visit the X-Men Is an odd and clunky name for a uh, letters page Next up Joe in Illinois And dude's got cues He's got a lot of questions here What is Wanda and Pietro's last name? Why doesn't Spidey's web stick to him? How old is Reed Richards? Why are the X-Men still at the Xavier School Post-graduation? Why hasn't Thor married Jane Foster yet? Why isn't the submariner getting old? How do you pronounce Odin? Why didn't the Human Torch graduate high school like Peter Parker did? Where does Matt Murdock hide his mask? And is Jack Kirby ever going to ink his own work? Now, uh, Stan doesn't answer any of the questions. (laughs) He just tells Joe to keep reading. So I really can't wait for the how-do-you-pronounce-Odin story arc in Journey into Mystery, because, uh, I mean, where else are you going to reveal something like that? Next up, Al in California. He says the juggernaut two-parter was more exciting and realistic than a James Bond novel. Okay. Uh, He suggests Hollywood might make a movie out of it, and let's not give them any more ideas. He wonders if Professor X regularly brainwashes the X-Men to keep them sharp. In addition, he actually has a critique. Okay, he claims that in the Charles Kane relationship that it's Xavier who looks like the bad guy. And hey, we kind of said as much as well. Now, Stan assures us that Chuck's a good guy, even though in last issue's letters page, he kind of asserted that he killed the juggernaut at the end of issue 13. So, uh, yeah, what are you going to do? James in Ontario, he tries to explain Cyclops' visor as well. He suggests that there's a dial on the side of it that controls the beam. And Stan comments that that's as good a theory as any, and so good, in fact, that he might steal it. Byron in California. Now he tries for a no prize to explain why Xavier is always seen hanging out with the X-Men, despite not being a publicly known mutant. He, um, he, ugh, he spends a couple of paragraphs crafting a wildly unfunny narrative about, ugh, mm, about how it is, it's actually the chameleon from the Spidey book. Um, Stan gives it a thumbs up, which is more polite than me yawning at it. Jimmy in NYC. He cites Darwin and DeVries to explain the concept of mutantum, and just to point out that Stan is using the word incorrectly. Jimmy suggests that either those scientists are wrong, or Stan is wrong. And Stan, in Stan fashion, frantically replies asking, well, which one of us is wrong, which is great. Rich in Jersey, he loves the scholarly beast, and he would like to see him and the Scarlet Witch in a relationship. And I mean, we know from nowadays Wanda won't even reply to his emails. Stan responds by uh, suggesting maybe they'll set up the Hulk with Aunt May. And uh, nobody tell a current year writer about that, okay? We we don't need that. Monty in Memphis. He owns 72 Marvel Comics, otherwise known as a week's worth in 2021. He loves the X-Men best of all. He enjoyed issue 13, but he's still unsure about how the X-Men beat the Juggernaut. Well, Monty, um, they're going to spend much of the next half-century beating him by first yanking off his helmet and then hitting him with some psychic hoodoo, so uh, get used to it. He enjoyed the Human Torch cameo here. He also doesn't like the name of the letters page. He suggests changing it to, quote, Homo Sapiens Talk to the X-Men, which might even be worse than what they have now. Now, Stan realizes that Let's Visit with the X-Men sucks as a letters page title, and he offers a no prize to any fan who can come up with something better. And I gotta say, I mean, does Stan think no prizes Tree trees here? Because he's just giving them away. Anyway, that is our final letter. Let's head into special announcements land. Now, Stan announces that there's a musical quartet based out of Waukegan, Illinois, that calls themselves the X-Men. And he fears that when this swingin' band gets to be bigger than the Beatles, that people will think Marvel named the X-Men after them. Stan might want to get a hold of his lawyer at some point, and I'm sure like an eight-year-old Jim Shooter is probably like foaming at the mouth reading this, you know. It's like, you got to protect those properties, Stan. What are you thinking? Anyway, let's pop into some actual bullpen bulletins here. That is on a whole new page now, of course. And the first the first uh, news story here is Stan admitting that the Marvel Pop Art experiment was a failure. If you remember, they, they labeled their comics Marvel Pop Art Productions or whatever for... Like a month or two And uh, he reveals that he received a lot of angry missives about the change And so they're back to just being Marvel Comics group So, uh, fans, you have a voice And, uh, I mean, Stan is, uh, if nothing else, he's very reactive We got some art merry-go-round going on Don Heck will be uh, covering an issue of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Or, I guess, a story of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. But he will remain on Avengers full-time Adam Austin, or Gene Colan, will be drawing Iron Man and he promises that a new mystery artist will be taking on a new Marvel strip. Stan announces Marvel Collector's Item Classics, which he refers to as having an annual four times a year. It's a quarterly book, and it's chock full of reprints. So, uh, if that's what you're in the market for, well, you, now you have it. We can hop over to the Did You Know department. Now, did you know Saul Brodsky is a crack-a-jack penciler? Well, you do now. Did you know Hank Pym's going to be making a guest appearance? Hmm, did you know Stan's Girl Friday, Flo Steinberg, is winning popularity polls in colleges all across the nation? What? (laughs) Okay. Also, did you know Martin Goodman is one of the nation's top amateur golfers? Stan claims that he had never caddied for the man, but just uh, take his word for it. Stan says he gets a lot of letters asking what the top-selling Marvel comic is, and to answer that question, he says he doesn't know. So we'll just call it a ten-way tie or something. If you remember last time, we had a picture of a mystery mailing tube. I know you were all on the edge of your seats trying to figure out what was in this mystery mailing tube, and here it is revealed. We open the sucker up, unroll what's inside, and it's a six-foot-tall, full-color Spider-Man poster, yours for only $1.99. So you could basically buy 17 Marvel Comics, or this poster. Um, we get 25 new Merry Marvel marchers here, and of course their names and hometowns are listed. Nobody I recognize, but there is someone here named Dick Hurt Jr., which uh, I figure I had to mention. I mean, not only the fact that there's a Dick Hurt, but there are at least two of them, because he's a junior. Oh well. Mighty Marvel Checklist. Let's take a look at the books that were on the shelves around the same time as this issue of X-Men. Fantastic Four number 45 has... More Humans. So, you're safe to skip that one. Uh, Spider Man number 32 reveals the identity of the Master Planner. Avengers number 23 asks the question Has Captain America quit the team? Daredevil number 11, A Time to Unmask, will leave you speechless. And hey, you know, this is before Matt Murdock would unmask like every couple of years and then like remask and then unmask and then remask and then unmask. I mean, and that's just the Bendis run. So, I mean, this is a novelty back in the day. Thor number 123, Odin attacked. Tales of Suspense number 73, Adam Austin on Iron Man, and Cap is still fighting the Sleeper. Strange Tales number 140, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. see the end of HYDRA, and Doctor Strange in the Pincers of Power. Tales to Astonish 75, Submariner continues finishing his quest, and not even the Hulk is strong enough for what's about to happen to him. Sgt. Fury number 25 features Nick Fury facing off with one of Cap's old villains, and that is the month in Marvel. So what did we think about this middle chapter of the Sentinel Saga here? Um, Have I said silly but fun? Well, actually, I don't even need to say that here because this was just kind of, uh... This wasn't great. I feel like we're, like, not sure if the Sentinels are robots or if they have minds of their own here. It's very strange the way that they're, uh... Depicted and dealt with It's kind of inconsistent Like sometimes they sound like robots They have like the voice of a robot And sometimes they talk like they're uh, like New York cabbies It's very strange We also have the professor sometimes able to get through to them Sometimes not We get like a couple of pages of Iceman Making that big oversized ashtray Only to have Angel fly in after them anyway It's just very bizarre And of course, I mean... Stan wasn't writing this for some idiot in his 40s to uh, analyze a half century later. I try to preface that every single time, but I mean, the story is a little holy. There are some holes in this story is uh, what I'm trying to say here. And uh, one thing, you know, Stan, one of his uh, sayings is never give the fans what they think they want, right? That's something that we've heard time and again that Stan would say. And I feel like we're seeing maybe the genesis of that during this Silver Age Revisit as so much of uh, the story we've been reading is reactionary. I mean, that's one of the reasons I wanted to cover the letters page here. Not not so much. This is kind of a happy accident of covering the letters page. I wanted to cover the letters page just because I'm a mark for the letters page. I love the letters page, especially old ones, because it's just such a unique point of view for us to be able to take in. But in a happy accident here, we're seeing some of the suggestions that the fans are making, and we're also seeing how Stan is kind of just giving them what they want. We have a, like a loud voice saying, get rid of Magneto. And so he gets rid of Magneto, right? People want to know the origins of these characters. All of a sudden it's like, okay, well, let's shoehorn some origin stories in. Even silly stuff like giving Iceman his uh, his booties back, you know? It's just, uh, Stan is giving the fans what they want. And of course the pendulum will swing the other way and people will will complain about this pretty soon. And then Stan will give those fans what they want, ticking off the other half. So it's like... I guess it's an exercise in you can't make everybody happy. But what we do get here is a spotlight on the pre-X-Men Hank McCoy, right? We see him as a child. It would have been nice if the art was a little bit more representative of what was going on, on the, uh, in the story. But again, this is Marvel method, so it's pretty likely that the art existed before the script did, which, uh, I mean, Stan says that he had an arthropoid stature, and uh, all we see is a, is a little boy. And I mean the flashback wasn't wasn't terrible it was just kind of unnecessary I think and I say that as one of the last beast fans still standing so it's a little little unnecessary but I will hand it one thing which I thought it did very very well we have the beast introducing himself under the you know under the control of the psycho wave or whatever it was and he basically gives out the X-Men's mission statement they're here to protect humanity and he says that right to or right under Bolivar Trask, who realizes that, uh, well, he, he made a bigger mistake than he initially thought. I suppose for that and that alone I could excuse the scene and say it was worthwhile. Which is to say, pretty much discount everything I said for the past 20 seconds. It was, it was a value-added scene. I've, uh, I've come around <laughs> in arguing with myself. I've come around to uh, appreciating it and accepting it. Other than that, though, there's not a whole heck of a lot to say here. This is uh, very much a middle chapter. It'll bridge the gap, and we will cover the uh, conclusion next time out. The art here was yeah, strong as usual. Um, we're just a few issues away from Werner Roth taking over like complete artistic control of this book here, so we won't have the king on layouts anymore. It'll be all Werner Roth on pencils and uh, plotting, I suppose. Um, so I'm very interested in seeing how that uh, transition happens, if it's a smooth one or if it's something that, uh, that we notice right off the bat. But I think that's all I have to say about this middle chapter of the Sentinel Saga I'm still enjoying it uh, This was kind of a lull, but, uh, you know, nothing to get hot at It was, uh, it was fine And uh, I hope you're all enjoying it as well if you are, hey, even if you ain't, please write in. Let me know. You can find me several different places, uh, on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can call into the X-Labs voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. You can pop in over at chrissoninfiniteearth.com to see blog posts and show notes. You can join us on Facebook. The group is 90s X Men. And for all the Chris and Reggie audio content you could possibly want, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and that's available on uh, whatever device you're listening on right now, and probably many, many more. But that will do it. I'd like to thank you all so much for allowing me to occupy your ear for a little while today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.